a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Coming up this week, the return of Commander Keen. A new way to play your favorite Sega Mega CD games. And we get some incredible inside stories from Gremlin and Sega with Chris Wrigley. Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 178, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And I'm surprised Joe actually managed to make it in today because um, I didn't know if you had enough money for petrol to uh, for your car after all that money you spent out in Japan. Uh, yeah, it did cost me a few gold coins out there. <laughs> Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa, arigato. Now, you've been out to uh, Tokyo. Yes, yeah, so it's Tokyo for 10 days for my 30th birthday. Yeah. I celebrated in style, so it was like a dream come true. It was another world. Well, Rav and I watching your Instagram when you were out there, and um, you got a few pickups. Yeah, uh, I got 27 games, <laughs> um, which sounds a lot, but I actually spent less on those 27 games than I usually do at like any sort of retro play expo convention, which was quite nice. Wow. Is, that, is it cheaper out there then? Retro gaming is, yeah, yeah. massively. Um, just overall, everything was kind of cheaper other than clothes, mm. kind of noticed, so I didn't really buy any clothes. Was it all, is, what's the word, koi? Koi? Kawaii. 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 Yeah, yeah we yeah. went to a place called Harajuku, which is like, just mad for that, like everywhere. Nice. <laughs> just like giant candy floss, bigger than my wife. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just like okay. <laughs> I saw you posing pictures of it doing the uh, the V sign with yeah, your fingers. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we also did the photo booths uh, with a friend we met out there uh, who lives out there who we were visiting, and uh, you know where they make your eyes giant. And everything. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Real. What, what's like the big? There's like a big retro gaming market out there, isn't there? So there's a whole town called Akabara. Yeah. Uh, which we spent three nights at. <laughs> um, and it's the Electric City. and it, I think it's the Electric City. That might be Shinjuku. But Akabara is like the gaming, retro gaming central of the world. And like, you know how usually you'd like walk into John Lewis or something like that, like this big five-story building. You walk in and it's just games no and way. toys. And it's just like five, six, eight floors of it. And just big, you know, just super stores. It's not like a little store, like, you know, in a shopping center somewhere. It's, the shopping center is, is gaming. Can you haggle? Well. Uh, no, 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 buying a game and they're like no English and you're just like oh no that's cool it's cool like, <laughs> just take my money like, that's where your translation app's coming down yeah, here, absolutely. Oh, yeah the wife was everywhere with that yeah. so I had a friend actually a guy I know called Alex is out there at the same time as you yeah, and he was said, in all the gaming markets yeah. I think you were fighting with him over yeah. stuff so, uh. I did I did notice uh, <laughs> Super Potato the, the big one everybody knows yeah. there was like one other English guy in there when I was in there at one point and I was like oh okay hey Jenny tell me the only other English people he saw in Tokyo were like at the gaming shops at the gaming like, 
gaming shops. It's crazy. It's worth the trip then. Yes, absolutely. If you absolutely. want something different. Now, speaking of going away, actually, this weekend, I mean, when this episode comes out, you and I will be on a plane on the way to Norway. Yeah, exciting stuff. We've just got our Norwegian Krona, haven't we? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Ravi yeah. was sat next to me dishing them all out and I was like yo he's got loads of money he was like it's only 200 pounds yeah. <laughs> I was like oh okay. Ravi's like Del Boy isn't he a big yeah. roll in it one in, <laughs> notes in his pocket uh, but we're off to Retro Spill Messen this weekend in Sandyfjord if you are anywhere near um, that area definitely worth a trip along this weekend we're going to be uh, doing a few panels as well oh. um, including a few that we're going to be playing out on the show over the next few weeks so we're going to be doing um, one with Kevin Bayliss all about Killer Instinct Donkey Kong Country Battletoads uh, Banjo-Kazooie as well and DJ Slopes is going to be out there as well from Slopes Game Room he's coming out too there's going to be gaming tournaments loads of systems you can play on and everything so if you want to get last minute tickets for that if you are in Norway um, worth a trip along I'll shove all the links in our show notes at theretrohour.com now we did mention that we've got a great guest this week Chris Shrigley We've covered companies like, you know, Gremlin before on the show. Um, obviously, we talk about Sega all the time. He's got a really interesting history going from, like, you know, the, the early days of the 8-bit machines um, right through to working in America at Sega. And he also did stuff at EA as well. And we get kind of stories of his kind of transition through all these different companies leading up to the present day, really. So there's some really interesting tales in there as well. Even from, like, you know, those early games, like text adventure kind of games that he worked on, like PubQuest. Well, you'd think... He'd start with PubQuest, which would be on, like, either floppy disk or tape. And then by the end of it, he's doing Sega Mega CD stuff. So the kind of change in format and the stretch of time that he's done is a really interesting one. Yeah, and he also worked for Disney, and he did stuff on, like, the NHL franchise as well. So, I mean, you know, really talented guy. So we're going to be chatting to him. Chris Shrigley is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast, and he'll be on in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the news this week, it's been a really busy one. Obviously, E3's been going on. Um, quite a lot of retro stuff coming out of E3 this week, actually, <laughs> including something that hasn't been going down too well. Um, if you remember Commander Keen, we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, let's give a big thank you to our loyal supporters. Now, the Retro Hour podcast comes out every single Friday. We bring you the latest in retro gaming news. We'll bring you a fascinating guest every week as well. But the only reason that we can bring the show out is thanks to your support. Now, we do have a little PayPal donation button that you'll find on our website at theretrohour.com. Click on the support section in there. Any amount that you donate is massively appreciated, really makes a big difference, and all goes back into the running of the show. And for making a donation, you will find your place in the very prestigious Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to... Tom Walker. Raymond Montalban, John Taylor, and Stuart Brand, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find the link at theretrohour.com. Tom Walker, not the singer. He's very well, popular right now. Funny enough, he? I actually know a guy called Tom Walker as well. So that's yeah. what. Okay. Yeah. Like, oh. So it's either Joe's mate or a, a megastar. Either way. Or, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe there's someone else called Tom Walker. Thank you anyway, Tom. Right, this week, <laughs> some really interesting <laughs> stories. Let's talk about another mini console. I can hear everyone groaning, oh, come on, what they're bringing out now. We've had the Mega Drive Mini that's coming out in September. Let me Nintendo stop you right done. there. I saw this and I went, oh, that's a bit different. So I was quite impressed with this one. <laughs> Well, this is, you're right, it is different. This is the TurboGrafx-16 Mini, or if you like, the PC Engine Mini. Yeah, I thought this looked, uh, like I say, it's different. I was just reading it as well. We are getting it in yeah. Europe, over in the UK, which is quite nice. It wasn't a very popular system, was it? Not here. Not here. Uh, it was a no. very American kind of base. And Japanese as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah really th they had the TurboGrafx CD, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah they did, on. yeah. Because I, I remember recently Kanye West 
named his album Turbo Graphics 16. Which is... <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. You put Joe off this now. No, I'm, I'm done with it now. <laughs> He's a metalhead. Um, but, I mean, when I first read it, I was like, why Konami bringing this out? I didn't realise, actually, Konami bought the rights to um, the Turbo Graphics and PC Engine back like about 10 years ago. Apparently. Oh, really? Yeah, so they own it, which makes sense. Jumping um, on the bandwagon. Yeah, but I mean, they've, they've owned it for a while, and I think, you know, they've done like a few little bits with it, but this, you know, they're calling this the most surprising announcement of E3, that they're coming out with this mini console. And they've revealed six games that are going to be bundled with the US and European editions. It's going to be like all the other ones, a mini system, yeah. HDMI out, comes with a controller and everything too. And um, the ones they've announced so far are Alien Crush, Dungeon Explorer, I think you pronounce this Yis or Yis book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. one and two. Ninja Spirit, New Adventure Island, and R-Type. And I do remember people saying that, that the best version of R-Type was on the um, the PC Engine. Well, I've got a Wii U. Yeah. And that actually has on a virtual machine all of the Turbo Graphics games. Yeah. And R-Type is awesome on that, yeah. I must say. Yeah, but I don't recognize half of them. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I don't know a lot about the Turbo Graphics. Like, obviously, Bonk. Mm-hmm. was like their big guy mm-hmm. so the bonk games are probably going to be on there and splatterhouse as well I yeah think splatterhouse one uh, was it splatterhouse yeah it was splatterhouse one wasn't it on there so they'll probably pop up but looking at that straight away i've only actually heard of like three of them it looked, you know what i mean like out of the mini consoles though this the style of this looks really like the turbo graphics you know it looks like a, a nicely done console yeah it looks pretty cool and for me i mean being a platform like you guys I looked through the games list and I was like, yeah, I recognise maybe two or three of them. Yeah. But uh, to me, that's a good thing because it's like, I've never played these games before. And it, yeah, it's a way to explore. library to explore, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, doing it via emulation, you don't really know how well it's running or whether it's playing like it should, but having something like this, it's an official product, you'd imagine they're going to do it right. Have they announced any sort of release dates or costs or anything like that? Well, they've announced that it's going to have a separate multi-tap, which is kind of old school, having a separate multi-tap, considering the new Hyperkin N64 has mm. the four ports at the that's front. That's pretty but, cool, yeah, though. Like, it is. That's yeah. pretty cool. Like, uh, I think keeping it original, because the original console had the two. You can have so. five players simultaneously as well. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, looking through the articles I've read so far, I haven't seen anything about an official release date. Okay. Um, I imagine the fact they showed that off at E3 this year means it can't be too far away. I mm. just find it quite funny that e 3s now turned into the show that all the retro stuff yeah. comes out <laughs> it's like what and it, they've got like you know CRT emulation and stuff in here as well original 4x3 aspect ratio which I know please you Ravi you hate your stretched screens yeah, don't yeah. you so um, <laughs> it just makes you wonder what other mini console is going to be coming out next I want an Atari Jaguar CD Mini. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, there's probably an appeal for that kind of thing in the retro gaming scene. Stuff like, you know, the, the systems are hard to get hold of now or people have never played. I'm Dr- just trying to Dreamcast think. Dreamcast Portable. I'm oh. really like, I'm just like really scrambling my brain now. Like, what was that, uh, that massive flop console that Alan Sugar did? Oh, the, um, yeah, the, the GX4000, <laughs> yeah, the Amstrad. Yeah, something like that, the GX4000 Amstrad Mini. <laughs> you know, like, cause Sky the own emailer, the rights, don't they? The emailer mini. Yeah, the Amstrad emailer. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, all these, like, you know, blueprints and stuff are probably in the back of some dusty filing cabinet yeah. at Sky's HQ or something, so probably wouldn't cost a lot to license What's it. What's that Apple one as well that came out? The Pippin. The Pippin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think Apple ever want to see the Pippin again. The so Pippin Mini. <laughs> that probably wouldn't happen. But the GX4000, actually, is a system you can pick up pretty cheap. I was in, um, I didn't buy one because there's not many games for it. Yeah. And, you know, the library doesn't really interest me all that much. I mean, as a, you know, peculiarity, I'm quite interested mm. in it, I guess. But there's one in, um, there's a game shop in Lincoln. Okay. Um, I was over there like last summer and they had one in there, I think, boxed for about 50 quid. It's not bad, is it? Yeah, I looked at it and I was like, I said, the guy, have you got any games with it? He went, oh, there's one, like a racing game. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I, I didn't pick it up. Maybe I will at some point. Though. A friend of mine, Richard, he had two, funny yeah. enough, when he used to collect. Um, I don't know what he sold them for when he sold his whole collection. But yeah, he had two, funny enough. And I thought that was quite funny. But they always just reminded me of that really cheap, like the way they were built and the feel of them. It's like, it felt like a Millennium Falcon. <laughs> like, you know, like a play set that you get like, you know, this could just break like so easily. <laughs> you went like that, yeah. Yeah. When all the Americans come over uh, to the game shows here, they're yeah. all looking for them. Yeah. Because... They just can't find them in America at all. So they'll find them at some obscure show in England and be like, right. And that Commodore 64 <laughs> game system. Yeah, GS yeah. as well. Yeah. I saw one of those at Play Expo, actually. Um, I think it, Quan, I think he had it um, from a Tech. And there's not many of them around now, but that was like the Commodore 64 put into, essentially like the, the GX4000, yeah. put into a case. I think actually... They had like the cassette headers and all that like, hidden away by the plastic. So it was just a Commodore 64 motherboard put into a case without Brilliant. a keyboard. But then, like, you know, the infamous story is one of the games that came with it. It said press F1 to start and it didn't have a keyboard on it. Yeah. So, it's... yeah. Um, but I remember my local Tandy selling those off for 19 quid each. Brilliant. Last one I saw on eBay went for about five, 600 quid. So, yeah. Should have picked up a few of them in hindsight. <laughs> so let's talk about the uh, return of Commander Keen, another announcement at E3. Commander Keen, obviously, legendary platformer back in the day on the PC. Yeah. Commander. Keen was kind of the attempt by id Software to uh, kind of do a platformer for the PC because there was there was other titles later. Jazz Jackrabbit yeah. was a, a famous one, but Commander Keen was really the first kind of platformer, and the scrolling on it was beautiful. It was it was a really nice game actually, and they did quite a few uh, follow ups, didn't they? Later, well, you remember back then the PC in like the late eighties. Yeah, it wasn't really a machine that was built for platform games. Yeah, people didn't think it could do platform games. So it was a bit of a technical achievement that they managed to release that on the PC platform of the day. I mean, you think then most people were running like you know CGA or EGA with um, a built-in bleeper speaker. But, but also Duke Nukem. You remember the yeah. original of that was a side-scrolling platformer. Well, it turns out all these years later. At E3, one of the things that's been getting most talked about is um, there is a new Commander Keen game on the way. Now, if you watch um, the little... <laughs> this is not a new Commander Keen. This is a commercial lie. <laughs> Just to well, make I, money. So it I'm not, looks I'm, awful. I'm not familiar with Commander Keen. Well, that familiar. I'm, I know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I've never played it or anything. What well, you guys have spoke about it and I've seen it and stuff. And this just looks like a cheap... Tacky mobile. Tacky mobile <laughs> game that you download for free. Like... It's a knockoff of another popular game. You know, this is when Flappy Bird comes out. This is like (laughs) Flappy Man. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, this is, I don't know, the animation on it, everything, it just looks cheap. Well, it is a phone game. Yeah. yeah. And and it's like, you know, Bethesda have put this up on their YouTube channel. At the moment, it's had 127,000 views, 393 thumbs up, 5,700 thumbs down. Um, which kind of says it all. And it has been... I don't think I've seen one positive comment about this game. No, it looks awful. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. What like, a... mobile, think yeah. of the games that you can do now. Yeah. And this is like an old Java game or something. It's This really is very bad. iPhone free. Yeah. You know? I mean, the top comment uh, with over a thousand thumbs up is... Look how they massacred my boy. It just says it all. <laughs> oh, and I bet I bet you'll have play to win as well. I bet you you'll be able to like just buy this, a this thousand is, gold coins seems to and be then beat everybody. A all. little, yeah. I don't know, in the trailer, like some sort of like you've got cards like tools yeah. at the bottom, and I bet they're going to have to be like bought in booster yeah, packs or something. Well, that happened recently as well because the Lemmings game came out on the mobile phone, and a lot of people said I like it, and then a lot of people were saying no, there's too much of this coin buying and this oh, really? kind of thing with with the new Lemmings title as well and uh, some people were saying it's quite decent actually it's quite hard there's another comment here that actually 
brings what, what I was thinking when I first saw this. Who are they aiming it at? Because, you know, you think of like players who played the original Commander Keen, that was like 30 years ago. They're going to be 35 to 45 years old. Yeah, yeah at least, yeah. And it's yeah. like, are they going to want to play like what looks like a mobile phone game for seven-year-olds? It's yeah, like, it's a bit of an odd one. Yeah. Is that going, it's going to appeal to those people who now have seven-year-olds. Yeah. And it's like, look, this is like a remake of what I played, you know what I mean? But it's not very good. So, you know, <laughs> if, if you did play that as a kid... You're going to look at that. I mean, like, like pretty much all these comments are saying, like, it looks dreadful. Mm. So you're not really appealing to people that played it first time around and remember Commander King with, you know, fondness. And kids are not going to care who he is because they don't but, know who Commander King is. I think That's this right. is what happens when retro becomes a trend. Yeah. So someone will say, oh, let's do it retro. Great, Commander King. And then they'll put no effort in at Maybe all. Maybe it's just like, <laughs> Bethesda were just like, what IP do we own? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Fallout Shelter. Are we making money from it? Fallout no. Shelter was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fallout, the Fallout mobile game was popular, so... Let's do a mobile game. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's the only thing I can think of. I love um, LGR did a video about it. Did you see him? No, I haven't, I haven't seen, seen that. He yet, literally yeah. walked or, walked up to it. It's a six second video. He puts his uh, his phone up to the screen and goes, "Nope." <laughs> and he walked. That's it. The end of the video sums it up, I think. But the thing is, recently, you know, when these kind of you know, we've seen it a lot with, like, you know, the, the the Sonic movie, for example. When it gets this big backlash, often developers and companies are now are a bit like, oh, okay, mm. maybe we should refine that or change it. I mean, it, maybe they'll listen to the feedback and it might. No, they just up. need to scrap that and start again. <laughs> it's like... A abs- proper new Commander yeah, King absolutely game. nothing like the original. Yeah. yeah, crazy. That could have been any other game, couldn't it? Just yeah, yeah, that you could have just put, like, two politicians' faces on it and called it, like... <laughs> Politics war. <laughs> it would have been fine, you know. Just trademark that quickly. <laughs> hey, something that might interest you, Joe. I know you're a big Sega fan. You've got your Mega CD collection at home. You've got your 32X. You've got your, you know, your nice little original system. You're excited about the Mini. What about having essentially an EverDrive that would let you play your Mega CD games without having to use discs? This looks pretty rad. Now, this is the Mega SD, the world's first Mega CD optical disc emulation cartridge. So how does this work? Does this like plug in and pretend it's a Mega CD and all that's just done on the one cart? Literally. It it goes straight into the Mega Drive and then it lights up, which looks pretty cool. (laughs) Anything with lights (laughs) on. Anything with lights on. Uh, Pretty light. Absolutely. And it looks like a virtual racer cartridge, which I thought was quite cool. Um, And then it just plays Sega CD games. Well, it plays original Mega Drive games too. What what is this like, wizardry? (laughs) But but we talked last week about Sega releasing a piece of plastic for the Mega CD. So if you now cut this piece of plastic open, put the cart inside, you might actually have your Mega CD (laughs) add-on. There you go. And so, Rob, you're thinking of hacking it and modding it already. (laughs) Not even come out of this thing yet. But yeah, I mean, I've got an EverDrive for my Mega Drive. Yeah. But looking at this, I mean, it really does what the EverDrive does, but it can also play ISO files. Okay. So as well as ROMs, you can put like 600 megabyte CD images on here and it'll stream them to the Mega Drive. It's quite an expensive item at $232, I think. Euros. Euros, yeah. Oh, euros. Wow, yeah, even more. That I saw it. When Dan I was going to say dollars, it's all right, but euros, it's it's on the high end, isn't it? Yeah, you, Dan, you expect to get the Mega Drive as well. I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty excited about it, and then Dan showed me, well, showed me the article, and I was like, oh, it's the last thing on the whole article as well, yeah. the price of it. But what's quite interesting, as I've just seen, is uh, it plays 32x cartridges. If you have a 32x. If you have a 32x. Yeah, the EverDrive can as well, I believe. So it? It's not okay. really giving you anything more over the EverDrive, okay. which is like right, half fair. the price, yeah. apart from the streaming of um, CD but images. But it also works with the analogue. Uh, the new Mega Drive. Oh, SG, yeah, the SG, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, you know, it's cool and everything. You can do the Master System games as well, like the Overdrive can. Yeah. Um, but really, all you're doing is, I mean, you know, for 232 euros, I imagine you can you can pick up a Mega CD. Pick up that. a Mega CD for and an Everdrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be fair, yeah, you could actually. So Mega CD, you can probably get a Mega CD one for about 100 pounds, maybe yeah. a little bit more. I saw two actually for about sixty quid the other day. Yeah, I mean, oh, two. So that's the thing. I mean, some people don't want to deal with optical discs and all mm. that. So I get it, but I understand this is like a you know a, a project that's not made by like Konami or someone like that. So it's going to have a bigger overhead cost. Yeah, I mean, they can't do huge I volumes. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool if you're downsizing. Like you downsized a few years ago, didn't you, Dan? Yeah. And you do just like, and you you're a big fan of like the Mega CD games, and the Mega CD is really expensive to collect for. If you do want to be playing Snatcher. You know, that is like a £250 game, but then there is another argument. Mega CD doesn't have any sort of lockout on it. Yeah, no copy protection yet. No copy protection, (laughs) so you can just copy it. But then, also, this would be the, like, nicest way to play it, wouldn't it? So if you had the HDMI coming out of the analogue, you had this in there, it would would look really nice. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are are people that will want that kind of, you know... Yeah, if you're that mega Sega fan. Yeah, so... If you're doing a buy one, if you've got a you know, spare 232 euros floating about, <laughs> I'll let you have links. It's going to be out in August um, in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Let's talk about Dust 2. Yeah, so Dust is the most famous map in the world yeah. of any computer game. You know, they recreated Dust in real life. This is absolutely crazy. They, An artist rebuilt parts of the level in Germany. So what's happened now is it's officially Counter-Strike's birthday, 20 years. And, God, that makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now turned into Counter-Strike Go, which is a kind of total different version of Counter-Strike to the original. Yeah. And uh, we actually had Min Leon uh, who in episode 61 who created Counter-Strike. So he, if you listen back then, you can hear all about it. Gooseman. Gooseman, yeah. <laughs> so they're talking about Gooseman and uh, Jess Cliff originally releasing it in 1999. And to celebrate that, they've actually put Dust 2 in Counter-Strike Go. So they've got the original map Dust 2 with the old school textures in there. I was going to say, could... it's got the old school graphics, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, because they've got a Redux version yeah. on CSGO. So they've got a new Dust. Yeah. But they've bought the old one back just for this anniversary. I think that's pretty cool that all these new CSGO players will be playing a 20-year-old map. Yeah. That probably people who are their dads used to play. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know what? That reminds me. I uh, met up with my cousin, uh, my baby cousin, <laughs> about two years ago, who's now 18, so he's not my baby cousin anymore, and he's a big CSGO pl- uh, player. Yeah. yeah. And he found out that I was a console player, and he you know, scoffed the fact that, you know, I'm a console player. You console lamer. Yeah, like, kind of thing. And I was, just like, I was just like, right, okay. And then he was like, oh, he was like, I bet you don't even know what CSGO is. And I was just like, it's Counter-Strike, boy. And he just looked so shocked that I knew what Counter-Strike was. Like, like it's been around since before you were born. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when we were kids, we had one period, we had a huge social group of mates and then suddenly Counter-Strike came out and half the social group split. Like literally half of them was stuck at home playing Counter-Strike, throwing knives at each other. And the other lot were all going out and talking to girls. It was, <laughs> Which side were you on? I was on the girls talking. So oh, okay. <laughs> I've never been more disappointed in you. Uh, but I mean, actually, these textures do hold up quite well looking at these screenshots, I think. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, a PC that's spec'd out today can probably like, run it quite smoothly. 4K, I don't know if they look amazingly <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, but they're saying, obviously, with it being the 20th anniversary, they're not sure how long this is going to be up for. So Yeah, yeah. So play it whilst you can. Get it while you can. So, um, yeah, I'll shove that in our show notes as well. Now, just one quick story to cover before we chat to Chris Shrigley, our special guest this week. Speaking of episodes that we've done in the the past um do you remember we had that uh, lewis castle on yeah yeah and we're talking about blade runner 
Awesome game. Yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. game. Uh, the thing about it is, Blade Runner has not really been all that simple to play um, because it's not been on, like, you know, good old games, didn't have it on there. Um, there's not really been an easy way to buy the game. And also, the only way you could really get it is by setting up either DOSBox or a retro PC. And it doesn't run all that well on, like, modern Windows and stuff like that. So a lot of people have been quite interested in playing that game. And now they've actually managed to get it running on ScumVM. Oh, that's awesome. So... ScumVM have been doing lots of little tweaks and stuff. And have you heard of the residual engine as well? No. So the residual engine is was another development later on, and that was for Grim Fandango. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. So you can actually now start running Grim Fandango. So right. I was running it on Morphos on uh, the, uh, you know, weird operating system. On the Mac, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, because... Uh, those later kind of point-and-click adventure games that came out around that time. So that was Westwood game, wasn't it, Blade Runner? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they, they kind of had support for Full Throttle as well, and they have support for the Monkey Islands, the one that you liked. Yeah. Uh, the later animated one. Well, Scum VM, for, you know, if you haven't used it before, that's how it started, because um, Scum was the engine that LucasArts used for all their old adventure creation games. creation utility for um, Maniac Mansion or Manic Mansion, wasn't it? There you go, look at that, look at that knowledge. <laughs> I'm sat here just like, wow, where's all this knowledge when we do the Christmas quiz? <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> but this, this programme was a way that you could play these old games on a modern yeah. system, and it'd just kind of be a wrapper for them. But, yeah, they're expanding it to do so much now. And the fact that they're getting into kind of that late 90s era when it was, you know, big CD-ROM games with full yeah. motion video and animation, all that's pretty and cool. I, and I saw recently they were actually tweaking some, like, edutainment titles and stuff like that that you really don't expect to go on there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for, for this game as well, I, th- I think it's cool that now there is an easy way to find the play it because it's a very atmospheric game and obviously Blade Runner being one of the biggest like you know sci-fi franchises in history um, means it's an easy way to play it in your modern system now so I'll shove that in the show notes as well along with everything else we've talked about this week you'll find all the stories at theretrohour.com a new episode will be out next Friday we'll have uh, our panel from Retro Spill Messen our first one Uh, hopefully on next week's show nothing will go wrong with the recording I'm sure well I'll I'll be off in Brazil as well so I'm going to be talking with the um, CEO of Sega in Brazil or Tector yeah, so yeah. Te- Tech Toy are like the official licensee of Sega. Yeah, Brazil. yeah, but kind of Brazil's the one freaky place where Sega's still rocking it. They yeah. still play Master Systems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're, we're hopefully going to have an exclusive interview with them. Um, yeah, it yeah. should be good. Yeah, I'm going to try and video it as well. Yeah, Go yeah. to Tech Toy and check out that place and also bring back some now, just before we get into our uh, interview this week with Chris Shrigley, if you do like our show, actually, and you like the interviews that we do, there is another great podcast. Very good friends of ours who recommend that you check out. Uh, they've been going for years now as well, the Arcade Attack podcast. And they do really comprehensive interviews. So um, if you like what we do, definitely worth checking them out as well. Oh, really yeah. Guys. Awesome podcast. So they're at arcadeattack.co.uk forward slash podcast if you want to check them out. Right now, let's get the history of companies like Gremlin Graphics, Sega and EA with this week's special guest, Chris Shrigley. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. Then let's welcome on this week's special guest. A pleasure to have you joining us, Chris Shrigley. Hey, hey, nice to be here. Thank you. Now, I know you're sitting in the, uh, not sitting in the dark at the moment, are you? I know there's a power cut where you are right now. Well, not quite dark. I mean, it's a beautiful, sunny California day here, <laughs> but uh, I've got the blinds closed. It's never dark in California. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to get into you know your move up there because obviously um, you're from Britain. I mean, how did you originally get into video games and computers when you were a kid? Then uh, games. I mean, they didn't factor into anything when I first discovered computers, and it was was not by design, purely accidentally. Um, basically, at school, I was around about 13 years old, and I noticed 
that there were these kind of weird space age white boxes that suddenly appeared at the back of one of the uh, the classrooms. I was like very intrigued, and uh, it turned out they were they were pets, Commodore pets, and we'd just got them in the school. I just started kind of hanging around. They were they intrigued me, and uh, like all the sixth formers. Uh, were only allowed only, only those guys were allowed to play on them and, and work on them. So I just kind of sidled in and insinuated myself into everything and kind of slowly got access to them. And then you know was able to pick my subjects at school. I, I chose computer science just so I could get access to them. But when you did get into games, I mean, were, were you like hanging out at arcades or anything, or playing games on these machines or at friends' houses? Yeah, I mean. There were games on the pet, like uh, you know, the Pet Space Invaders and Lunar Lander and stuff, and they, those immediately attracted me, obviously. Um, but yeah, most of my game exposure was kind of friends, um, you know, TV console, like the, the old Binatone um, game stuff. And then a little bit later on, when I was a little bit older, I had some money to spend. It was, it was all arcades, you know, just hanging around in arcades and doing the tour of this the town centre every Saturday, every chance I could get, really. For Christmas in 1982, you got a C64. What was it kind of like, that moment when you saw this C64, and how did you persuade your parents to get you one? Well, I knew about the Commodore 64 from, you know, all the sixth formers. They were talking about it, and they had some brochures that they, they were, like, pouring over at school. And, you know, this thing looked amazing. It was it was colour. It had sprites, um, well, mobs, as they were called in the in the brochures and um you know so i just sought out every bit of information i could on the thing um i was you know magazines whatever and eventually um i <laughs> taught my mom into you know giving me some money some of her hard, hard-earned money uh, combined with an old savings account my granddad set up when i was born uh, to let me go pre-order one from my local computer shop which i did and uh, I, I remember just waiting months and months for it to be released um, and arrive uh, in England, and um, yeah, I, I remember getting you know the call from First Bite, which is the shop in Derby that I bought it, that I pre-ordered it from, and that it was in, and you know I was down there so quick. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it's just an amazing thing to to own. I mean, I was only a kid; I was 15 when I got it, and um, it was mine. It was probably the first thing I ever owned that was mine, and um, it was it was. <laughs> It was kind of a revelation, really. Was that the first time you kind of thought about programming and got into it? And how did you start? No, I was programming at, at school. You know, when I, I got access to the pets, um, that's all I did. I was just I was writing little programs, little math programs. And uh, and then I'd, I had a, carried a notebook around with me all, always. And I used to you know, kind of jot down uh, little basic programs and walk around the computer shops in Derby, like First Byte and Datron, and just, you know, write silly little things and run them. So I was programming um, nothing really serious because I had limited access to computers. But as soon as I got my uh, my own Commodore 64, that was it. You know, every waking moment uh, that I could, you know, get the thing set up, I was I was on it and programming. Peeking and poking. Peeking and poking, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, first, the first thing I, I programmed, actually, was a Mother's Day card for my mum. Um, which really impressed her and I think kind of solidified in her mind that it wasn't a mistake, <laughs> you know. 
Well, I guess, you know, the first time you put something up on the TV, it is like, well, you know, it's on telly. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it was like magic. Yeah. Uh, Mum didn't know anything about computers, so it was easy to pull the wool over her eyes. You know? <laughs> I mean, one, one game that you was, uh, you know, one of your very early games, Pub Quest. Um, and the story behind that game was um, after a heavy night of drinking in your local pub, it's time to pay the bill, but you have no money and the landlord wants his cash. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it might be a silly question, but what inspired that game? <laughs> oh, well... Uh, a love for beer, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we used to, even though I was only 15, you know, there were, there were ways of getting your booze. So it was, a, it was a keen interest at the time, for sure. Yeah, and that game was that game was actually the first kind of big basic game that I, I attempted on my uh, 64. And um, a good friend of mine, Rob Toon, who I, I worked with quite a lot over the years, um, he actually wrote uh, a text adventure game. And uh, he was the one that, kind of inspired me to write that and encouraged me to write it but basically told me to write it you know i learned a lot doing that game how did you end up getting it published then well it's through my mate rob again he he'd already got one published uh, with dream software and uh he mentioned you know that i'd written this pub this game about pub, you know, basic pubs and stuff and uh yeah, they were interested sent it off to them and they, they liked it and they uh, yeah, they published it it was pretty easy I mean, it was all accidental there was nothing planned so, <laughs> but then seeing your game in the shop for the first time, what was that like? Do you remember it? Oh yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I, I used to go down to Boots, and um, they actually had a, like three or four copies on the shelf, which was just mind blowing, you know. Because up until that point, I'd, I'd been a consumer. I'd just been, you know, going to these places to to play games, and uh, all of a sudden, I had a game on the shelf. Uh, I used to go there, and I used to move them all to the front, so. You know, they weren't obscured or hidden. <laughs> and were you a fan of text adventure games? I mean, was there any kind of any games that influenced like PubQuest? Were you playing any like text typing games? Yeah, I, I was. I think actually, I'm you know, I'm not sure. I can't remember the timing whether it was you know kind of all jumbled up. But you know, I loved the the, the, the Scott Adams adventures, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide and stuff. But I'm not sure if they came after PubQuest or before. To be honest with you, I think the main reason I wrote it was again because of my mate Rob because he'd written one. And um, it, it was kind of the most obvious thing to do because I could you know, ask him questions. I could get, you know, help when I got stuck. Um, so I think that was probably more the reason I did a text adventure because it was kind of the easiest thing. I didn't have to do graphics, for example, you know. Well, after that, you worked on Bounder, um, which was, you yeah. know, a very ambitious game. Um, what's kind of the story behind that game then and, and the, the process of making it? Yeah, that, again, was... Um, you know, just uh, kind of an evil, <laughs> a natural evolution um, after, you know, working in basic and stuff and writing lots of little half demos and half games and never really kind of finishing anything substantial. Um, I, you know, got together with Rob and Andy, a couple of my mates, um, and we just decided that we were going to write a game. We didn't know what it was going to be, and um, but we just knew we... we we wanted to kind of collaborate and get together and actually write and work on something together. You know, we set out with that in mind, but Bounder, you know, kind of emerged slowly over the course of a year from that process. You know, we were just hanging around on the park talking about games and ideas. And, um, I mean, Bounder originally started as kind of a Marvel Madness clone yeah, um, with a kind of a fancy scroll that I'd done. But, yeah, eventually kind of morphed into this tennis ball bouncing game. You ended up sending Bounder to Gremlin. Why did you choose Gremlin? And uh, what was so important 
about working for Gremlin. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there were only a, a handful of companies that were interested in, you know, Gremlin and Ocean were the main two. And <clears throat> we managed to kind of get one package together, you know, a disc and, you know, printed some like a little, uh, you know, little bit of blurb to go with it. And uh, we could only afford to send off and do one packet. We, we, we were broke, you know, we were, uh, and um, the, so we, we kind of flipped a coin and sent it to Gremlin. Oh, wow. <laughs> first, yeah, and they, they just, we were getting ready to send another, co- you know, copy out to Ocean, but Gremlin, you know, they came back to us really quickly. And, uh, yeah, they kind of snapped it up. History could have been very different then if that coin landed the other way. Yeah, yeah, it could have been, <laughs> could have been an Oceanite. And, you know, I actually worked with a load of Ocean people a little bit later on, but, yeah, and I ended up being a Gremlin. Well, under Gremlin, Bounder did very well. I mean, I remember that in a review in Zap 64, 97% it got. And I know Gary Penn absolutely loved that game in, in the review. And, I mean, it was reviewed very well by magazines, which I imagine was, you know, in that kind of pre-internet age, the magazine reviews could really make or break a game. Oh, yeah, that's all there was. I mean, you know, we poured over the mags. People waited for the mags to come out. And you you read them from cover to cover. I mean, every last sentence, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, being in a mag and, you know, having a, a proper game that was proper published by a proper company, it was you know, kind of kind of a crazy reality, really. And so, yeah, getting that, getting that review was kind of a big deal. Gremlin definitely were, were happy about that. And in Bander, I remember the music being really catchy. Did you do the music for the game? I didn't actually. All right, okay. um, did that. I actually, I actually implemented it in code, but Andy um, transcribed it. Some kind of I don't know where he got it from. Some piece of sheet music he had at home, and he transcribed it <clears throat> and created all the data. And then I kind of dropped it into the game. Um, the only thing I did compose on that game was the uh, end of level jump bonus music, right. which isn't really music. It's like. 10 notes <laughs> little jingle <laughs> a little jingle and I, I put that together in like one evening because we needed something on that screen so yeah that was the only thing i did musically on the game well you were the key c64 developer there why did you prefer the 64 over over eight bits i didn't really have much choice we were kind of, it was kind of clicky at, at gremlin we, there were two camps there was the specky lads and there was a, you know, the, the commodore lads which was basically me andy and rob and um, it's just the way it, it turned out. I mean, they brought us in as a group, you know, from you know, when they gave us all jobs after Bounder. And uh, we just became the, the Commodore guys. And we sat on one side of the room and the Specky guys sat on the other side of the room <laughs> and we threw paper at each other. And, and uh, yeah, that's, yeah, there was a bit of crossover. <clears throat> I did a little bit of Spectrum work, like on Football of the Year. And, uh, but, yeah, we, we kind of kept our own camps, really. It's good to know that playground rivalry existed in the companies as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it was it was friendly. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, at the end of the day, we all ended up at the pub together. So no fisticuffs. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, next from Gremlin, I mean, Future Night um, came along, and looking back at that game, I mean, that was a, a game that kind of reviewed a little bit mixed. I mean, some people found that game really difficult, and some oh, people God. say it, it was a little bit unfair. I mean, was the difficulty setting intentionally set high, or what was the story there? Yeah, well, everything we made was just stupid hard. I mean, Bounder was stupid hard. And um, that was mainly down to Rob, who was the designer on the games. And he was just like this 
monster in the arcades. He could play any game indefinitely. So he kind of tuned everything to his skill levels. And so consequently, everything ended up being really stupid hard. Uh, Future Night, we actually started uh, just before we joined Gremlin. It was, you know, we kind of started that game immediately after Bounder. It took a few months for us to actually end up up in Sheffield. So we had a couple of months on the game and they let us finish it basically as our first project there. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of our homage to uh, Ghosts and Goblins, really. It was, it was very derivative of that. And that was a hard game anyway, wasn't it? It was, but, you know, that was a game that, that Rob and I were both very good at in the arcades. And uh, we kind of wanted to do a version of that. And that was, you know, that was the motivation behind the game. It kind of turned out not so good. You know. Well, He-Man was huge in the 80s, and you got to work on the Masters of the Universe movie game. What was it like working with uh, He-Man and such a popular brand at the time? That was uh, a little bit of a departure, I guess. I mean, we were doing, you know, kind of original games up until then. I think that was probably the first movie license I worked on. And it, it was just a game that kind of landed on, on my desk at, um, you know, Gremlin Derby. And didn't really have much choice. You know, here you go, Chris, this is what you're working on next. We need a game around this movie. And we didn't, I think we got like a, a preview video and some, you know, uh, like concept art and stuff from the company. But that was it. We didn't really get any other input or guidance from them apart from, you know, some feedback along the way as we uh, made the game. But we had pretty much free reign on that game to do what we wanted. Um, we did go down to uh, London and we got like a, an actual preview in a, in a private cinema of the, of the movie, which was pretty exciting and awesome again. And, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it just kind of showed up and we were told to do it. Cause now a few years later when, you know, we, we speak to developers who worked on like movie games maybe in the 80s, they often got like a, a Bible, you know, the, of like rules and situations they were allowed to put the characters in and stuff they couldn't do. But I mean, at that right. stage, were they kind of just a bit naive to it maybe and just let you get on with it, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe I just wasn't aware of that stuff. Maybe, you know, because there were, um, you know, Terry and Terry Lloyd and, and uh, I can't remember... Um, yeah, they, they were kind of designing it, so they may have dealt with some of that stuff. You know, I was just in my own little world in programming away, so I, I wasn't really you know, aware of that if that happened. That, that map system was just a nightmare, you know, with every, everything scrolled vertically so you couldn't tell where you were ever. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it is what it is, I guess. Did you get much time to make the game, or was it kind of a tight deadline? Did you have to turn it around quick? Or? Well, everything was, yeah, everything was turned around quick back then i think probably six months max on any game and that was probably around about five six months i think start to finish so what was gremlin work like working for at this time it must have been crazy because they were kind of hitting the big time and you know lots of success at that time yeah i mean we were in derby so they they opened yeah we were commuting up to sheffield to start with for about a year and they felt sorry for us and eventually you know opened up this office in derby for us and so we were fairly unsupervised and, you know, kind of separate from, you know, the Gremlin headquarters. Um, I mean, we, we did have, you know, Jeremy and, uh, and Greg who were kind of you know, babysitting us and making sure we didn't do anything really stupid. 
But yeah, we got into plenty of trouble there. I mean, we were we were rowdy. You know, we were would surf down the corridors on signs, and <laughs> you know, all, all of our neighbours just hated us. You know, we we drove them to despair. Actually, you know, we made so much racket. You know, we we were just these young, indestructible kids. You know, having a good time, and we we had a good time. Oh my god, yeah. Well, that Derby office obviously became core after that, didn't it? It did, yeah, yeah. You know, when I guess the industry went through that crunch, and um, Gremlin had to kind of economise or you know cut costs and stuff, so they they decided to close those uh, the Derby offices down. But and we were all laid off, and then immediately rehired. In fact, we we had a meeting in uh, in Stuart's office, and Jeremy was there, and Kevin Orban was there. And, um, you know, they said, oh, sorry, guys, you know, we're, we're going to lay you all off and we've got to close the office down. Uh, but Kevin has something to say to you. And Kevin, you know, stepped up and he just says, yeah, I want to give you all jobs. We're opening another office down there. We're going to do something different. So we're all like, oh, OK. Mix of emotions in that meeting, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, hey, it was you know, up and down. It was. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, we we basically. Uh, took the, the Gremlin officers and we extended them and we kicked down the walls, literally um, drop kicking them, kung fu style. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we we just gutted the place. And uh, I think there's actually a photo that I, I shared a, a little while ago of us standing with the Gremlin sign all torn up. And um, like we we like destroyed the Gremlin sign and we uh, in an empty office ready for court to start. Because we're based in Nottingham, actually, and like I, I took one of my friends over to Derby a while ago, and we were driving down. You know, there's Lara Croft Way there now, isn't there? And like, oh, yeah. me and my friend was like, "What? Why is it called Lara Croft?" I'm like, "It was made over there in that building." Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that building yeah. is not the actual building. I think the original one got knocked down. Right. But there is a, a similar one that everybody says that's the Lara Croft Mansion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when uh, Gremlin Derby core design that we started off in like uh, Heritage Gate, which is about, about like a tower block. Well, I wouldn't call it probably about six stories. And um, that was closer to the city centre. Um, and then when I, I mean, I'd left, I'd been gone a couple of years before they actually moved to that big house. Um, but I used to go there occasionally and hang out and see Rob and Andy. Lock the butler yeah. in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, you worked on Footballer of the Year as well, and is it true that that started out life as a board game? Yeah, it did. It was some fella sent it in. It was all like a big stack of paper and a mock-up board, and um, uh, the the guys played it a little bit, and it played really well on paper. And um, Ian Stewart just wanted to make something out of it, and um, so it was handed off to me and Terry, and uh, we sat down and, and tried to turn it into a, a computer game. And did you end up doing the majority of the work on that game then, yourself? Yeah, I did. I did all the I did the whole thing on the Commodore 64. That was actually my first solo project. Uh, up until then, I'd always been working with Andy. And um, that was my first game by myself. Uh, it was uh, quite a trial. A lot of, lot of, lot of learning on that game. Um, but yeah, that was... And then, I guess, it did pretty well. And uh, so they did the the ports to Spectrum um, and MSX, and I, I was involved. And the Atari uh, 400, I was involved with those as well. 
And I guess with a game like football that's got, you know, traditional rules and everything, it's like you've got to get it accurate as well. You can't just go around like, you know, changing stuff and changing the rules up as well. Yeah, well, there wasn't that much actual football playing in the game. It mm-hmm. was mostly managing, you know, your teams and, um, you know, making decisions and rolling dice and stuff like that. So the actual, I think that the sum total of all the football play, gameplay in the game was those penalty shootouts. Mm. And that was about it. So, you know, rule-wise, we didn't have to worry too much about actual football rules. Well, one game after that that came along that obviously did implement, like, real-life rules was Advanced Pinball Simulator. And obviously, pinball yeah. is, you know, it's um, it's got a lot of physics and stuff as well. I mean, was trying to do a, a realistic-feeling pinball machine a bit of a challenge? It was. In fact, it was so much of a challenge that I couldn't do it uh, at the time. And uh, that whole game is one big, basically faked-out thing. It's... Um, the basic ball movement is physics, I guess. Um, but like a lot of the collision detection and the way the ball interacts with the stuff on the board is was kind of canned. It would, you know, the ball would hit something and then the code would take over and move the ball around and things like that. So a lot of smoke and mirrors in that game, but it actually turned out, you know, reasonably, reasonably good. Um, very close to the the specy version, anyway. So yeah, smoke and mirrors. Well, how busy were you around this time? I mean, it sounds like you're churning out games every every few months. I mean, was it was it quite an intense time? Oh yeah, yeah, nonstop. And uh, pinball, the the events pinball game was actually a side project that Terry and I did, you know, to earn a bit of extra pocket money. Um, so yeah, that was on top of the the games we were doing for Gremlin at the time as well. So yeah, busy, but you know, young, boundless count, you know, energy, not not really a problem. Well, how did you make the move from Gremlin in Derby to kind of working in America? Oh, God. Um, well, Gremlin became Core, and then Core, well, there's, I don't know, there's a big story behind that, you know, how I left Core. Um, there was some, I mean, I've, I've talked about this in other interviews about the, 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 the trouble with the share, you know, shares in the company that we were promised. And um, I was a bit of a rabble rouser and troublemaker. And, uh, you know, I, I um, stirred things up a little bit too much, probably, you know, about the fact we weren't getting our fair share. So I was actually fired uh, from core. And, but coincidentally, I'd been working for a couple of months uh, with my friend Matt Sneap on, uh, starting Eurocom because I, I kind of knew that the writing was on the wall for me at core. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly happy that we we're being in my, in my view, we we're being kind of, um, taken advantage of. Uh, so the timing was actually perfect. I got fired and I was planning on, on quitting. So I, I quit at the same time and we had a little bit of a back and forward who fired who and who quit, <laughs> which was, which was, kind of funny um you, you can't fire me i quit exactly that was, that's kind of how it went down uh, there was a lot of shouting as well you know me and jeremy in in the in the back office uh kind of having a, a shouting match with each other but yeah i was i, I was gone I, i'd already kind of checked out Eurocom was already you know a thing uh, by the time that happened so you know i left and then a, a week later i was up in ripley uh, you know, tearing the NES apart and reverse engineering uh, the game system and working with some of their electronic electrical engineers to um, kind of build our own dev system. Uh, we didn't have access to the official dev system, so we were making our own. 
uh, real old school stuff. Um, so yeah, I ended up at Euricom and did a bunch of stuff there, which was amazing, fantastic, great. Again, working with your friends, uh, but they went for a cash crunch. Uh, they ran out of money, so I was I just had a baby. I just, I, you know, I bought a house. I needed money. I needed an income, so I, I, I started looking elsewhere. Uh, my friend Andy had already left core by that point and he moved to america working for cinemaware uh, so <clears throat> you know i used to I chat to him uh, every couple of weeks on the phone and he was just like pecking away at me i should talk to bob jacob talk to his boss you know they're looking for people you know so i did i went down to london had an interview got offered a job and yeah in january 91 i think it was i, I moved my family to california wife a one-year-old and two suitcases and, and that was the start of a, a whole new life and adventure bit of a change from rainy derby oh massive change <laughs> yeah yeah the smells the, the sounds the light everything it was it was an absolute trip <laughs> how, how did the games industry differ there uh, compared to back home uh well i was never really much into the you know the the, the workings you know the the business side of stuff at that point so to me, it was the same. It was just, you know, here's a, a manual, here's a piece of hardware, and here's a game we want making, you know, like figure it out. And so that was all the same. So yeah, that was that was uh, the first thing I had to tackle when I got there. And I got a like a, a manual that was all in Japanese, and uh, <laughs> that I had to wade through again and uh, and try and figure out the hardware. But yeah, it's same old, same old, really. Just different hardware, different language. Um, I wasn't really. Know, privy to all the the businessy stuff. I mean, did you find working on like you know the sixteen bit consoles was different to doing games for home computers? I imagine there's kind of different rules, I guess. Uh, different rules, but again, just really all the same stuff. I mean, you know, a Commodore sixty four has set memory. It has things you can and can't do with it. Same with a a, a Genesis, Sega Genesis. It's just just different. I mean, the, the Genesis was more powerful. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you could do more more sprites. You know more colors, you know more everything. So there was a lot of freedom in that. You know, to, for us to express ourselves a little bit more. You made the move onto CD with the Mega CD and uh, Batman Returns. How did you find that? Yeah, that was that was an interesting project. We we got the Sega CD in because uh, we had a relationship with Sega and they wanted developers to make stuff for the for the new hardware. So we we kind of got advanced versions of it that we played with. And none of us were really very impressed with it at, uh, at Acme at the time, because uh, it was just it was very clunky. It was a very much a kind of a bolt-on thing, you know. It was um, they'd basically taken a, a Genesis and added a CD drive and you know some you know some other kind of chips to kind of bind it all together. And um, the only really exciting thing about it was that it could do uh, you know kind of some 3D stuff. Yeah. You know, it had built-in scaling and you know for, for bitmaps and things like that. Um, so that was that was interesting. That was exciting, but it was really just a genesis. And um, I actually didn't get to. Unfortunately, I didn't get to work on any of the cool stuff. You know, I didn't get to do any of the any of the pretty graphic stuff. That was all John O'Brien, who uh, absolute genius. And uh, I ended up doing all the unpleasant stuff like um, gluing the game together and doing all the CD-ROM subsystems and 
uh, disc layouts and uh, like the shell and the uh, you know all the title page stuff, things like that. So anything anyone else didn't want to do, I ended up doing on that game, <laughs> so, basically. Because it was like a standard Genesis version as well that was very different. It was like a more of a, like a side-scroller, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a, there was a platform game. That was done by Andy, Andy Green. Yeah. And uh, that was, I had to glue them both together so that they'd, you know, it would go back and forth between the games and maintain state and all that stuff. I mean, it wasn't a trivial job, but it was, it was super, you know, unpleasant and tedious, really. Especially when Andy and uh, John were getting to do all the, all the you know, fun stuff. You made an interesting point as well about, you know, the first time kind of CD-ROM um, became available. And I, and I remember walking into a shop and seeing the Mega CD and yeah, it had like, you know, some kind of primitive video showed on like a postage stamp size window in the middle of the screen right. and 16 yeah. colours or something. And again, it was like, you looked at it and you thought, oh, it's kind of interesting. But then you saw the price tag. And at the time, I, I imagine a lot of developers were just trying to find ways to kind of fill this new storage medium. Yet again, you're still in that kind of limitations of the technology of the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were filling that disc, and yeah, that was actually a, you know, caused a problem. And that's kind of began shifting games more towards these big productions and bigger teams, you know, because you needed more people to make more stuff. So you worked for Disney Games too, as well. Uh, what were like the difference and rules around working with Disney with their IPs and values? Were they very strict? Uh, they were actually. Yeah, Disney was an interesting uh, experience for me. That was my first taste at you know corporate america and yeah they had a lot of rules a lot of things you couldn't couldn't do although the kind of group i was uh in at the start it was pretty small it was disney software and they just kind of i think they'd only been going for about a year before i was hired and uh so they they were able to do they were a little bit more nimble uh than the rest of the company so you know we were able to do uh, some interesting things. Um, the first game I did there was Gargoyles on the on the Sega Genesis, and that was very very controlled on the art side. You know, the uh, the original animation company that did the TV show uh, were heavily involved with the animation for the character and, and you know the styles and all that kind of stuff for the game, which didn't really concern me. I mean, on the coding side, uh, you know, I kind of just did my own thing as usual. Yeah, I guess, you know, being at a company like Disney, you know, being an animation studio, that look has got to live up to their kind of, uh, keep their reputation high, I guess, as well, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 And they, like I say, they were really super picky about uh, uh, Goliath, you know, the main character in that. And, you know, they, they actually did all the uh, animation for us. The TV animation people did all the animations that were, and they were, they were all overdrawn by our artists. And how long were you originally at Disney, folks? I know, I know you, you went, then you came back again, didn't you, after? I did. I, I kind of joined them, I think, 93 or thereabouts. I was there for maybe two or three years, maybe three years. And, um, and then I ended up back there again in 2008. There's actually a, a kind of an interesting story around Eurocom and, and Disney at this time because uh, Eurocom, yeah, I'd left Eurocom, obviously, uh, to, come, to come to America. And I'd done stuff for Acme and Malibu and ended up at Disney. And um, Disney were looking for basically companies to do work for them, uh, you know, contracts. And I suggested Eurocom because I was still, you know, talking to Matt and stuff. And um, so we ended up going over to England and uh, it was the, the most surreal thing because I was, I was basically leading a meeting for Disney at um, Eurocom's offices 
at a big conference table with Matt and Hugh and, you know, Tim all sitting around a table uh, on one side and me and the Disney, you know, guys on the other side <laughs> trying to put a, trying to put a deal together, you know, uh, to give them work. And, um, yeah, it all worked out basically. And, um, it's kind of a strange, you know, full circle thing there that ended up kind of getting them, um, a whole bunch of work through Disney. That must've been a surreal meeting. It was, it was very surreal. It was very strange, you know, to be back there, uh, in a different capacity and kind of, yeah, it was interesting. Well, why did you leave Disney first time around? First time around was they, you know, Disney liked to lay loads of people off uh, regularly. And, uh, you know, they they throw tons of money into something and then they realize that they're not making the money back that they expected. So they just close everything down and do something different. And that's, that's kind of the way it is at Disney. Um, so, you know, I joined Disney the first time at the beginning of this big epic cycle where they basically blew $200 million dollars on you know putting together Disney software and Disney Interactive, and um, that that arc kind of lasted for maybe three years, and then they laid us all off. And um, well, they actually gave me a choice to move into management or you know let be laid off, and I, I chose being laid off because I didn't want to do management stuff. I wanted to make games. Well, after Disney, I mean, you went to work um, at Electronic Arts on the NHL franchise. How did you end up working for EA, and what was it like working for them at that time? That was a that was a contract uh, freelance gig after Disney. Um, I did a one of the producers I worked with at Disney uh, had some connections, and he picked up the project, and he needed a, a programmer. And you know, I just basically left Disney, and I was kind of mulling about what I was going to do, where I was going to go. And uh, he hit me up to see if I was interested in, in doing, uh, you know, the new version for that year of NHL on the Sega Genesis. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like, you know, a lot of fun and the money was good. And that must have been yeah, quite late in the Genesis's life, was it, doing that, that NHL game? Yeah, it was. It was the last game I, I did. Actually, was it the last game? I actually, I think I did a little bit of work on Spider-Man uh, on the Sega Genesis after that. That was for Western Technologies. But, yeah, I mean, this was at the tail end. Certainly, you know, my, my career on Genesis was, was pretty much over at that point. Um, you ended up working with mass media doing ports for the Game Boy Advance. What was it like working for that system? Was it kind of like going back into the past a bit? Yeah, that, I mean, that was just one of many projects I did, I did at mass media. And that was um, kind of a quick... I mean, so the, the guy that ran mass media, David Todd, he was trying to build a relationship with Blizzard at the time, and we'd done uh, StarCraft on the N64, and uh, yeah, he wanted to do more stuff with them because uh, you know, prestigious big company, and uh, they were looking for you know someone to port these three games: Blackthorn, Rock and Roll Racing, and uh, The Lost Vikings, and um, so we picked that we picked the gig up, and. It landed on basically Andy Green and Mai's desk because we were working together again at that point. And um, yeah, it was, it was it was it was a bit of a step back in night because we were doing PS2 stuff and Xbox stuff at that point. So going back and trying to you know, you know tear apart the, tear apart the graphic formats and writing all the tool set to to convert all the assets, um, you know, and we had to actually pull the assets out of the ROM images and stuff. We had we had very little source materials for those games. Uh, so that was uh, it was <laughs> yeah it was it was an interesting fun difficult 
project um, and we did some really cool and interesting solutions to some of the problems on that game but yeah it was it was interesting going back and and you know trying to understand an old system like that again. Well, I was reading um, an interview that you did in Retro Gamer magazine, I think it was, um, a few months ago, and you're talking about your time at Mass Media. Um, And I know you were there like about 10 years. It was a long time you were there, but you're talking about how you found it quite a difficult place to work. Was that more in the end? And what what kind of happened to finally cause you to leave the company? Yeah, that was was a fairly traumatic time, actually. The the ending of uh, my time at, at Mass Media was was um, underlined by me getting sick, basically. Uh, been working on a, a game called Tetris Evolution on the Xbox 360. And it was just <laughs> it was probably the, the most brutal project that I've ever worked on, technically and, and just, uh, you know, time-wise, schedule-wise. And uh, I was doing all the networking because it was a multiplayer Tetris game. I was doing all the networking stuff and... Uh, and it was just a, a brutal six-month crunch at the end. Uh, I was you know, working just insane hours for a prolonged period of time. They basically broke me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I got sick at the end of the project. And um, it, it made me realize that there was, there was kind of more to life than killing yourself. And um, I got out. Yeah, I, I, I needed a change, so I moved on, and that's when I, I joined Disney for the second time and uh, trying something different, doing MMOs and things like that. I mean, did you find on the consoles as well? Because I imagine you know, the, the bigger these systems got and the more storage space and the more advanced hardware, and what kind of what were you expected to do a lot more? And like, were the, were the team sizes not getting bigger to cope with the demands of the hardware and the projects? Uh, well, I mean, you've got to understand what mass media was. Mass media. We didn't. I mean, we did make a few original games at Mass Media, um, but we were a we were a chop shop. We were like um, a hardcore problem-solving tech, um, you know, studio, and we did everyone's, you know, kind of redheaded stepchild projects. Anything that anyone else couldn't do, we ended up doing. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, everyone there was just just a, a, a gnarly old low-level engineer, you know, and the teams were still small because we were porting most of the time. Uh, so, you know, a typical port, like, for example, like uh, Full Spectrum Warrior, for, say, you know, there are only, like, probably five of us on that game. And, uh, you know, we, we did everything with just a very small team. Epic game that was, by the way. <laughs> I, oh, you I like was that? addicted to Full Spectrum <laughs> Warrior, yeah. Because it was just when the Iraq War was going on, so <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a good, that was a good project. It was, I was a, I mean, I say fun projects. I mean, I mean, mainly challenging because none of them were really fun. I mean, they're not, they weren't very creative things to do, but mm. they were extremely challenging uh, technically to do. Um, so. Well, recently, people will know you for the RPG game Immortal Darkness, Curse of the Pale King. Could you tell us more about what you're up to these days? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that was that's basically been my labour of love for the past two and a half years, Immortal Darkness. And um, we published it late last year on Steam after, you know, a long time in development. And the project was essentially a vanity project um my friend damon and i uh, were, were, were pretty uh, much into D and tabletop gaming 
and uh, we always wanted to make a dungeon crawler. It was kind of, you know, based around D and D with all those kind of cool things like treasure and traps and stuff. So we just sat down and decided to make this game, and it turned into, you know, a proper full-blown project. We had like eight people on it. We started a company to do it, and um, you know, the game turned out pretty good. Um, absolutely, the game we wanted to make. And I, I essentially, I, what I do now is I maintain that, and uh, I do bug fixes and do all the community stuff and the support for that game, um, while you know, juggling a bunch of other small projects and prototypes that I'm working on. That must be um, very rewarding, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't get better, really. I mean, it was, it was kind of a dream come true. I mean, I actually left Disney. Um, I kind of retired. Um, I'm doing air quotes, by the way, retired. <laughs> uh, when I was 45, uh, it was about seven years ago now. And, um, you know, I got to do what I wanted to do. And I was I was unhappy sitting in a cubicle and uh, you know doing other people's bidding, uh, so getting the chance to actually you know quit and do my own thing and go indie was uh, just a, a, a huge dream of mine for a long time. So yeah, getting to do it, I was very lucky, very lucky to do that. And and you know, luckily I was in a financial situation where I could actually afford to do that. And it's great that the indie game scene today is so big as well. I mean, you know, you wouldn't have thought that you could have, you know, small teams and even bedroom programmers are making games that are doing well these days again, which 20 years ago you couldn't have imagined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, indie stuff is, is you know, it's definitely uh, an exciting you know, kind of fun thing. You know, there is a, it is tough though. I mean, game. there are so many games out there. It's very difficult to get noticed. It's mm. very difficult to get exposure unless you've got like a, you know, you get lucky or you've got money or you're, you've got an in in some you know, with some influencer or something. So it's not all you know, rainbows and unicorns. It's, uh, it's actually a very tough business to make money in. Uh, but if you can afford to do it and you can afford to take the risks, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's what it's all about, in my opinion. I mean, it doesn't get better than you know, making your own stuff uh, on your own time. And looking at the reviews of, you know, Immortal Darkness as well, I mean, it's got some, you know, r- real hardcore fans. People people do seem to love it. So, And the RPG crowd, I imagine, are often you know, quite hard to win over, aren't they? Some very serious gamers. They are, yeah. they are. And, and the game's kind of a little bit weird. It straddles. Uh, it, it's, it's not quite one, one thing or the other. It's a little unique in that respect. Um, so when people love it, they really love it. Uh, we haven't uh, really had any anyone hate it. Uh, but a few people have scratched their heads over it, trying to figure out what it's about. And then, you know, they play it and they get into it and they get into the story and, you know, they, they get to play with all the really cool spells and stuff. And, uh, yeah, they end up being a fan. Yeah, you would just need to get more people looking at it and <laughs> playing it, that's all. <laughs> well, I'll make sure we put a link to the, uh, the place and get it off Steam on, on our show notes this week as well, Chris. So, uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, hopefully everyone will go check it out. It's been amazing getting your stories. I mean, you know, some incredible companies and games that you've worked on over you know, the past few decades. And long may continue, Chris. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast this week. Yeah, thanks. It's yeah, been a hell of a ride, and I appreciate the, the call and the time I can talk to you about it. It's good stuff. 